Today's scripture reading is from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 18. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am, and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is God's word. The book of Hebrews was written to first century Christians in the city struggling with fear, struggling with discouragement because of their suffering. And the book serves almost like pastoral counsel to people who are struggling, to people who are suffering. And so in chapter 1, you have the author telling us that Jesus Christ is the exact representation of God, the final word, and he sustains the universe with his power so you can trust him. He is sovereign over our lives, over our world. You can trust him. You can trust him because he's king, but he's a very unique king. And the whole purpose of the book of Hebrews is to practically lay out what it means to look to the king, to look to him, to look to Christ. This is a king who engages with us, who fights for us, who's proud of us. He engages with us, he fights for us, he's proud of us. We need to look to him. First, this is about a king who engages with us. Chapter 1 says, Jesus Christ is the exact representation of God. He's the final word. In other words, he doesn't negotiate. This is a non-negotiable savior. His word is truth. But then, in chapter 2, he says, in verses 6 to 8, what is man that you are mindful of him, that you care for him? You made man a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In other words, yes, Jesus Christ is high up but he came down to man. You know what that means? Even though he's king, even though he's the high king, he's engaged with his people. You know what that means? He's heard our cries. He hears your agony. He sees you in your suffering. And he didn't just look down and just observe. He actually came down and engaged. He made himself vulnerable, just like us, not at the risk of his life, 
but at the cost of his life, knowingly. And as it's written in Isaiah chapter 53, it says that he didn't just come knowingly, he came gladly. He was satisfied to come down, to suffer, to die for his people. So you see, on one hand, yes, Jesus Christ is all-powerful, and his word is non-negotiable, his word is truth. But on the other hand, he chose to come down. He chose to engage. He came down into the brokenness. That's the meaning of Christmas. That's what Christmas means. That's what it is. The king came down. The creator became born. He became a baby. The infinite has become finite. The invincible has become vulnerable. There's nothing more vulnerable than what? A baby. There's nothing more vulnerable than that. Verse 11 says Jesus Christ is of the same family with us. Verse 14 says he shared in our flesh and blood and in our humanity. Verse 17 says he became fully human in every way. And then he concludes here, verse 18. Have you suffered? Jesus suffered. Are you tempted? Jesus was tempted. This is a king who bleeds. This is a king who comes down, he suffers, and he bleeds. And because he created us, and because he loves us, he, in, he got involved. He's engaged. Christmas means that God chose not to become distant. That means we can go to him. That means we can cry to him. That means if you have complaints, if you're grumbling, you grumble to him. Because he hears you, he sees you in agony, he sees you in your suffering. He's a king who's engaged. The second thing here that this passage teaches us is that Jesus is a king who fights for us. In verses 5 to 8, the author quotes Psalm chapter 8. It's printed in your call to worship. In fact, you see very similar language here. And what the psalmist in Psalm 8 is doing, and the, and the author of Hebrews is reminiscing on Psalm 8. He's reflecting on it. It's, he's basically doing his quiet time on Psalm 8. And he's looking back. And what he's doing is he's saying, he's looking at creation. And he's asking, what is our purpose? What is man that you're mindful of him? What is our design? What is our purpose? Why are you mindful of us? Why, why do you care for us? You made us a little lower than the angels. You crowned us with glory and honor, and you put everything under our feet. What is our purpose? And the purpose is this. The author is reflecting on this, and he says, you created us to be kings. When God created the world, he established us as vice rulers. He says, you, we rule. We are meant to rule. You put everything under our feet. We are vice kings, vice regents to rule the earth. We were put on earth to cultivate the earth, to nurture the earth, it means it was our responsibility to sustain the earth, to bring justice and order and prosperity and harmony. This concept, you know, Jerusalem, the name Jerusalem means it's the city of peace. It's the city of God. It's the city of peace. This concept of shalom, and shalom is not just peace. It's, you take the words justice and prosperity and harmony, unity, you put it all together, and that still pales in comparison to the meaning of shalom, this holistic sense of peace and order. And the Hebrew author is looking and reflecting on Psalm 8, and he affirms this. He says, God crowned us with that glory and honor. That's our design. But there's a problem, and the problem is sin. If you look at the last part of verse 8 in Hebrews chapter 2, he says, yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. We don't see everything placed under our feet. 
Even though God made the world to be under us, that's not our reality. That's not our present reality. That's not what we see right now. When you look out right now, you don't see justice. You don't see harmony. You don't see uh, this concept of unity. You don't see this concept of shalom. You don't see any of these things. You don't see man cultivating the earth. He's stripping the earth. In verses 5 to 8, the author is reminiscing about the beauty of creation, the beauty of our design. But then he says here, he says, that's not what we see. Instead of harmony, we see tragedy. We see brokenness. Because when human beings, even in paradise, if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, even in paradise, human beings rejected God as king. And they said, you know what? I don't want to be a vice king. I'm going to reject God as king. Then I can be my own king. And the moment that that happened, everything fell out of orbit. Human beings have lost their center. Everything fell out of orbit. We can't even cultivate our own lives, let alone cultivate the world. And so the world became a dangerous place because we stopped cultivating it. We couldn't cultivate it anymore. It became uncontrollable. It became dangerous. It started to decay. And it began to, it began to decay emotionally. We began to decay relationally. We began to decay uh, physically, sexually, in every way. That's what the author is saying here. Now there are natural disasters and there's war. Now there's poverty. Societies are breaking, breaking apart. Families are breaking apart. Our careers are all broken. Nothing is the way that it's supposed to be. And the biggest problem with the world is what? Verses 14 and 15. We are held in slavery by fear and death. Everything is uncontrollable. Everything has become dangerous. The world is decaying and falling apart. And on top of that, it's capped by verses 14 and 15. We are held in slavery by fear and death. Fear and death. You know what that means? What does that mean? Ernest Becker Famous writer. And in the 1970s, uh, he won a Pulitzer Prize for this book that he wrote called The Denial of Death. It was actually out of print for a while, but only recently it came back into print. People have taken tremendous interest in this book because what he does, he builds on these existential philosophies in the past. Uh, when I say the past, I mean probably the late 1800s into the early 1900s with the onset of World War II. He takes these existential philosophers and he combines it with Sigmund Freud's philosophies and the basic premise is what? In the denial of death. That we are deeply disturbed and affected by our knowledge, by the knowledge of our mortality. One day we're all going to die and we're deeply affected by that because on one hand, on one bookend, Becker believed that there's this deep fear that resides in every person. Underlying every action in his life, there's this deep fear, there's this shame of, this per, of us not living up to what we were designed to be. There's this deep shame or fear of us becoming insignificant. It's, you know, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the kingly DNA of God acting on our conscience. There's this imprint on our conscience and so we feel the need to work and we feel the need to create, to build. We get upset when we see injustices out in the world. That's part of a kingly DNA that's built into us. But on the other hand, there's this deep fear of death. And that's Genesis chapter 3 working on our conscience. And, and what Genesis chapter 3 says is that we are, we're cursed. Essentially because of sin, we're going to die. And so what Ernest Becker says, no matter what you accomplish, at the end, there is nothingness. There's death. 
So uh, we spend our lives living in between those two bookends, coping with the fear of insignificance on one hand and the fear of death, nothingness, meaninglessness, no matter what you accomplish on the other hand. And so on one hand, you want to accomplish things, but on the other hand, it's all for nothing. So what if you do? So what if you do accomplish anything? It means nothing. And there's the horror. There's the terror. There's the fear. That's, we're in bondage. The author of Hebrews says, yes, we're in bondage to that. We're in bondage to the fear of insignificance and the fear of death. So what do you do? Why is it that we're always pursuing wealth? Universally. Why is it that we're always pursuing love relationships, sexual relationships in our lives? Why is it that universally we're always trying to step over one another to get ahead? Why do we do that? After, re- after all, that's the reason why there's injustice in the world. That's the reason for why there's no harmony or unity in the world. That's the reason why we're never cultivating the earth. We're never cultivating it. That's the reason why. Then why do we do that? It's because we're desperately trying to convince ourselves that we are worthy, that there's a sense of worth about us. We're desperately trying to convince ourselves through our wealth, through approval, through our sexual relationships, our love relationships, that we are significant. We're constantly trying to prove ourselves. And uh, we're trying to prove ourselves that what we do makes a difference in the world. But if, think about it. If death is the end, if death is it, then we're insignificant. There's no way of getting around that. That's the bondage that Ernest Becker is talking about. That's the bondage that the author of Hebrews is talking about. In verse 14, the author of Hebrews introduces a solution. He says, Jesus Christ destroyed the devil that holds the power of death. He broke the bond. He set us free. That's what he says. Now, when you think about that, we say in our age today, we say, how primitive is that? The author is talking about the devil. I mean, how primitive can you get? Come on. But think about this. If you believe that God is just, if you believe he's a just God, then you have to believe in the existence of the devil. You have to believe in that. Because otherwise, if there's no devil, then evil wins. If there's no devil, then injustice wins. Because even if the smallest sin goes unpaid, evil has won. Evil wins. Philosophically, it's hard to get our arms wrapped around that. Because that means every betrayal, if, if even one betrayal goes unpaid, betrayal wins. It could be your betrayal, you see. It could be somebody who's betrayed you, and they will win. They get away with it. And so if you believe, if the existence of God is a rational thing, if, even the, if there's even a remote possibility in the existence of God, then there has to be a remote possibility in the existence of the devil. If, there, if we believe that God is just, then there has to be an existence of the devil. And if God is committed to your flourishing, if God is committed to your thriving, if God is committed to just your growth and the cultivation of you as a person, then the devil is equally committed to your misery, to your destruction, to your bondage, to your decay. And then if that's the case, then what is the devil's greatest weapon? What is the devil's greatest weapon? It's death. Because death is what? The ultimate bondage. The ultimate decay, the ultimate insignificance, the ultimate nothingness. And so, if you think about it, remember Braveheart? You know, why is death our bondage? You remember the movie Braveheart? In Braveheart, you have this evil king. He is a ruthless king. And at the end of the movie, he's dying. 
He's dying. He's lost the ability to speak. And you have this gracious princess that enters into the room uh, of this king who is dying. And on the, in the distance, you have William Wallace, the main character of the story, and he's being martyred. He's about to be martyred. And so the princess is begging for his life, begging for his life to be spared. And the king, even to the end, is merciless. He's ruthless. He can't speak, but he turns his head. What does the princess say? You see, death, doesn't matter how accomplished you are, doesn't matter how powerful you are, it doesn't matter what you've done or who you are, death comes to us all, she says. Death comes to us all. We are held in bondage to the fear of death, to the fear of nothingness. What's the solution? In verses 5 to 8, the author says, everything's supposed to be under our feet, but the world is upside down, so in essence, everything is over us. We are held in bondage to everything. At present, we don't see everything under our feet. But then he goes to verse 9, but you see Jesus. Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. Now he's crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. What is he saying here? He's saying that Jesus, he's taking Psalm 8, which is about us. And he says Psalm 8 is really about Jesus. And what he does is he's saying here that Jesus Christ was made a little lower than the angels. He became us. He became man. That's Christmas. The birth of Christ. The incarnation. That means that God came down. God was made a little lower. God poured himself out. He emptied himself. And from that point on, from the moment of his birth, he suffered all the way up to the point of his death. And it's through that suffering that he became crowned with glory and honor. Because of that suffering, he became exalted with glory and honor. The suffering, in other words, didn't mute his glory. It didn't lower his glory. It didn't decrease his glory. It actually enhanced his glory. The author says it perfected his glory. And because it was through his suffering, because it was through his suffering that Jesus Christ redeemed the world. That's what you see in verse 10. In other words, this psalm is really about Jesus, right? And through Jesus, it becomes applied to us. We were made a little lower than the angels. Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. And because Jesus Christ suffered and died, and he was perfected, he was crowned with glory and honor, that glory and honor becomes applied to us. That's what the author is saying here. That glory and honor was poured out into us. We become sons. We are brought to glory. And the author says this, it's fitting that, that he made Jesus perfect through his suffering. He was already perfect, but it says here, Jesus was made perfect through his suffering. Now he's given a greater glory, a greater honor as the author of our salvation. What does that mean, the author? This is a God who fights for us. The author of our salvation. What does that mean? The word author here is archegos. Archegos. He's our arch ego. He's our arch leader. He's our arch self. You know what that is? If you, your arch rival is your architectural equivalent or opposite of you. He's the architectural polar opposite of who you are. So your arch rival is somebody who you are. He knows all your strengths. 
And he turns all those things into weaknesses. And he knows how to get you. That's your arch rival. The author here, the, the word author here, right, and the author of Hebrews says that Jesus Christ is our arch ego. That means that he is the equivalent of who you are, even better than who you are. He is the archetypal version. The arch- he is your design. Everything that you were intended to be, Jesus is. But, it, but it goes, that meaning goes even deeper because here he says that um, even though he is your arch ego, your arch self, he's your arch ego of salvation. He is the perfect representation of God and the perfect representation of man. We have a king, the perfect representation of God, who stood in our place, represents us to save us. An arch ego, the meaning goes deeper because as your perfect representative, this is somebody who's in battle. Imagine you're, you're in battle and you're fighting somebody and he's fighting. And as he's fighting and as you're fighting, he's just fully in control. He is masterful and he's fighting. But then he looks over and he sees you and you're about to die because you cannot overcome your enemy. So what does he do? He slays his enemy, comes, runs over, and just as that sword's about to come down, boom, he takes your place. He stands in your place and fights for you to the end. That's an arch ego. The author here is saying that Jesus Christ fights for you, stands between you and the enemy and fights for you and faces death. In fact, why is he crowned with glory and honor? Because he didn't just risk death. He died. He suffered death. It was the only way he could win. In verse 14, it says, Jesus Christ destroyed the power of death. Why? Because he died. He basically stood between us and death's sword. You know what death's sword is? What is death's greatest weapon? Death. Nobody can overcome it. And so what Jesus Christ did was he stood between us and death and suffered the blow of death to defeat death. How do you understand that? You go all the way back to the Old Testament. In 1 Samuel 17, you have David. Before he became king, you have David. And David fights Goliath. And, you know, he takes a sling and he fells Goliath. Goliath falls to the ground. But that's actually not what killed him. Then in 1 Samuel 17, what it says is that David walked up to Goliath took Goliath's sword, right, it was very heavy, took Goliath's sword, and he defeated Goliath with his own sword. And in the same way, the author's saying here that as our arch ego, as our representative, David was the representative of his people. As the greater David, as our representative, as our arch ego, he took death's greatest weapon, greatest sword, death itself. And by Dying, by suffering and dying, even death couldn't hold him down. He rose again. He defeated death once and for all. The gospel is God doesn't save us despite our suffering, despite his suffering and death, but through his suffering, through his death, we are redeemed once and for all. That's courage. There is our courage. There is our victory. 
There is our glory. Ernest Becker says, we are slaves to fear. We are slaves to death. But if suffering and even death can't hold Jesus down, and because that glory, that honor is applied to us, he rose again, we rise with him. It's, uh, if that suffering and death doesn't defeat him, that suffering and death can't defeat you. And if that suffering and death can't defeat you, what do you have to fear? What do you have to fear? That's what the author is making a case for here. What do you have to fear? Why are you discouraged? Hebrews teaches that we have a king who engages with us and fights for us, and he's won. The baby in a manger, it seems very vulnerable, seems incredibly weak, but it's through that vulnerability, it's through that suffering where there's victory. That should give you courage. If you're suffering today, and everyone here is suffering in some way, shape, or form, if you're in the midst of suffering, what the author is saying is, if the gospel came through the suffering and death of Jesus, the gospel will work through you and your suffering and eventually even in your death to bring glory and honor to the king even more. That's why even though he was perfect, he was made even more perfect because now because of his suffering and death and we are raised with him, we are brought, we are brought in as sons, that brings even greater glory and honor to him. That should give you courage. If God's going to redeem the world through Jesus' death and suffering, God could redeem others through our suffering. Maybe even through our death. Do you see that? There's a reason. It's intentional. He's a sovereign author. You see that? There's a reason. And the key is not to try to figure out the reason right now. Maybe you will understand the reason tomorrow. But the key is to know and to trust and to look and to remember Christ. That's why we celebrate Christmas every year. That's why we do that. Because Christmas is about the beauty of Jesus who came down, became vulnerable, suffered for you, fought for you. In verse 17, the author calls Jesus our merciful and faithful high priest. That means when Jesus Christ came down, he didn't just make sacrifices like the high, high priest made sacrifices. But as our perfect representative, the high priest was a very shallow representative. As our perfect representative, he became the sacrifice. He made atonement for the sins of the people once and for all. And so he became a high priest, but a faithful high priest. You know, religion says this. Religion says, live right and God will save you. Live right, God will save you. But that's only going to increase your fear. If you live like that, that's only going to increase fear. That's only going to make you, give you greater pride. It's never going to increase your courage. It's only going to increase fear because you're constantly working. You're constantly anxious. You're going to become a slave. Being religious actually, actually makes you more a slave. But the gospel is God emptied himself, came down, became our arch ego. That means that the worst thing that you could do during this period of Christmas is to become more religious. Don't do an injustice to the gospel. The worst thing that you can do during this period is to be more religious so that God will hear you. Jesus, the gospel is what? Jesus sees you. He sees your agony. He sees how enslaved you are. And he comes and he fights for you. He sees that you're about to die. So what does he do? He comes and he takes your place. The king has come. 
He has fought for you, and he's won. And so the third point is he's proud of us. He engages with us. He sees our agony. He engages with us. He sees our death, and so he suffers for us, and he fights for us, and he's proud of us. Verses 11 to 12. The author says, both the one that makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. In other words, both Jesus and the people that are made holy through Jesus, they're one. They're the same family. And so Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. You know what that means? Here, in our world, you want to promote yourself constantly. This world is inundated with us for the rest of our lives trying to promote ourselves. This is the end of work. That's what the author is trying to say. This is the beginning of true rest. Because in the world, if you live in the world, you're constantly trying to promote yourself, constantly trying to bolster your position. You do that on dates. You do that when you're hanging out with people. You're doing that in meetings. You're doing that to get promoted. You're constantly trying to increase yourself. It's all about your resume. I did this. I accomplished that. In other cultures, ancient cultures especially, other cultures are much more realistic about how you became the person that you are. In Western cultures, we're constantly saying, here's what I did. That's who I am. But in Eastern cultures, and especially ancient cultures, they were much more realistic. They said, you're actually not a product of what you accomplish. You're a product of your family. You're a product of your family. Ancient times, you understood that it was your family history that justified you. Today, we believe that it's our accomplishments that justify us, that prove us. But in ancient times, it was your family that justified you. So instead of presenting a resume, you presented a genealogy. That's what you presented. And you only showed the best parts of your genealogy. You know where I'm going with this, right? In the New Testament, in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 1, the author begins with what? The genealogy of Christ. He gives us Christ's resume. Very, very riveting in ancient times. If you're in, in the ancient world reading this resume, he says, this is Jesus Christ, your king. Let me read you his genealogy. But right off the bat, you know what you see? First of all, right off the bat, there are women in this genealogy. In the ancient times, you never included women. Why? Because women had no standing. They had little to no social standing in ancient times. And so you never mentioned women. They were too low in status. But in Jesus' genealogy, women all over. And the thing is, if you look at the women who are mentioned, I'm going to rattle off a few. You have Rahab who was a prostitute. You have Bathsheba, who was an adulteress. You have Mary, an unwed single mother. In those days, in those ancient times, you mentioned people like that, they were all deemed shameful. And yet Jesus highlights them as glorious and honorable. This, I'm proud to have come from these mothers. I'm proud to come from these women. You see, he proudly gives them a place of honor. This high king was born from these women. That turns everything upside down for us because we're constantly trying to prove ourselves in a world where your accomplishments define you. These are women who didn't accomplish anything. 
in a world where your upright living, your citizenship defines you. These are women who are not good citizens. Jesus says, I'm proud of them. They define my glory, you see. They have a place in my glory, in honor. Why? Because God's grace worked through them. He didn't work despite Tamar, a victim of incest. He didn't work despite Bathsheba. Right through that line, Jesus was born. Right through it, you see. And so the author of Hebrews says, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He's proud to call us brothers. That means that the people who are most honored by Jesus are the ones we easily overlook even today. Do you feel overlooked in your life? Everyone in a given week, there's a moment in time when you feel overlooked. There's not a single person here who has not suffered some form of abandonment or rejection, some form of forsakenness in their lives. Every one of us, at some point, maybe in a day, in a week, we feel that way. What does this tell us? God works through that to bring redemption in your life. So don't react to it. Don't be ashamed of it. Don't be, this, this is the end of a low self-image. The gospel takes away a low self-image. You know how you rebuild your self-image? Look to the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. The high king of heaven, born through these women. The glory of God progresses through you. That's how you, that's a true self-image. That's a true foundation on which your self-image can be based on. You see that? It means that no matter what kind of guilt you have in your life, come on, no one's going to be worse in this room today than Bathsheba, right? It means that no matter how much you fail, no matter what you've accomplished or not, right? Even if you've been through hell and back on the cross, you have Jesus Christ. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's crying out. He's saying, I'm suffering. I'm crying out. But there was silence. No one answered. No one answered. No one, no one came down and engaged with Jesus there. You know how they engaged with him? They hurled insults at him. They spit on him. They mocked him. They made light of him. They gambled away the little that he had. So he was stripped bare, naked in front of everybody, put to shame, overlooked by all, shamed, deemed shamed, shameful by all. On the cross, he says, and that was just the earthly suffering. On the cross, he says, I, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what that means? He's saying, no one is coming to fight for me. There is no arch, my arch ego has forsaken me. My arch ego, my center, my significance, my worth, my exact representative has distanced himself from me. He has turned away from me, forsaken me. He is ashamed of me. Why? So that God, this same God, could be proud of you, could be proud of us, so that he could treasure us. Jesus says, you now, because through that, you now are my brothers, and I'm proud. Modern versions of the uh, New Testament, they kind of do it a little bit of an injustice. 
because we're trying, to be in a, we're trying to live in a politically correct world. And so in a politically correct world, you can't just say, oh, you're my brothers. They say, oh, you're my brothers and sisters. But that, that actually decreases the meaning of this passage. Remember, being a woman in those ancient times didn't mean much. Being called a sister didn't mean much. He says, even in the gospel, you could be an adulterous, imp- impoverished, uneducated, unaccomplished, adulterous woman completely deemed shameful and yet you are a brother in heaven that's what he's saying he's not ashamed he's actually proud to be called to call you his brothers jesus christ died alone so you will never be alone he's engaged with you that's your proof that god is present in your suffering he's not only present he's proud of you He's proud and just endure, look to Christ and endure because he's saying, I am proud of you. And one day you will be crowned with glory and honor and the world will be right side up again and everything. Right now it seems like you're at the feet of everything. Someday the world will become right side up and everything will be at your feet again. That's restoration through Jesus' sacrifice and through his death. The cross, when you look to the cross, you see that God is engaged with you that Jesus fights for you. And in union with him, that means you are his brothers. You are his brothers. You are sons. He is proud of you. You are loved. Remember, the book of Hebrews is about how do you face your fears? How do you face discouragement? How do you face suffering in the midst of being persecuted because you're living as a Christian? And in your living as a Christian, there are people in this room who don't like Christians speaking to them. That's a form of persecution. They're actually persecuting Christians. They say, well, I'm not going to listen to that. You know? You're being persecuted. You don't even know that. You living out there in the real world, there are people out there who look at you, and they look at you differently the moment you say you're a Christian. That's persecution. You may not feel it right away, but that's persecution. Some of us, it's even worse. You're being passed over because of your integrity. Some of you, it's even worse than that. You're being put down because of your integrity, because you want to be honest in your job, because you want to work an honest job, you see. Hebrews is about how do you face fear and discouragement because you're suffering in the midst of persecution. The author says, look to Jesus. He's with you. You can endure. He's there. He suffered. He was tempted, you see. He's with you. He's engaged with you. Hebrews says he fights for you, and he won. So no matter what you suffer, even your death will only complete you. What have you to fear? It completed Jesus' glory. It will complete your glory, do you see? And he's proud of you. He says, I love you. He's proud of you. I'm just going to run through a few application points here very quickly. How does that shape your fears? How does it shape your fears? God is present. God is engaged. Jesus became broken. So everything will one day become right side up, restored, placed under your feet again. What, if, what future do you have to be afraid of in Christ? A lot of us, some of us are afraid of the future. We get anxious. Look to Christ because if your greatest nightmare on earth can't destroy you, can't ruin you, then what do you have to fear? The gospel says you have nothing to fear. Even death, you cannot fear. Ernest Becker, that means he was wrong. 
Because now you can live with hope and you can live with courage. You can live with a true sense of esteem, you see. You also don't have to be afraid of the past. That him, there is no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the life of Christ in me. That means you can have control over your life again in a sense. You can get a hold of it. Even if your world is falling apart around you, the hands of the king are healing hands. And so may the rightful king be known. That's from Lord of the Rings. Let the truth of Jesus come down, engaging with you, heal you. The second thing is, how does that shape you in your suffering? Christmas says God came down. God fights for you. That means Jesus Christ was rejected, he was persecuted, he was arrested, he was tortured, he was killed, he suffered, and he died. He went to the grave. Why? To free you from the grave, right? He suffered the ultimate suffering, the ultimate rejection, the ultimate forsakenness, the ultimate death. That means no one's going to understand abandonment more Abandonment in your life. No one's going to understand what it, what it feels like to be rejected by other people. No one's going to understand what it means to be betrayed by other people. No one's going to understand what it means to suffer like Jesus. Nobody understands us like Jesus. He experienced the fullest pain, the ultimate suffering of sin, so that when we suffer, we know you can be assured every time you look at the cross, you can be sure that he is present with us. That's what makes him faithful. He had to go through it. That's what makes him faithful. A merciful high priest, a faithful high priest, that's what it says in Hebrews, right? He's faithful because he's just. He wasn't going to forsake his justice. Somebody had to pay for sin, so he said, I will pay for it. Sin had to be dealt with. That's why he, as a high priest, he had to die. Jesus Christ was the ultimate high priest, but he dealt with our sin once for all in our place. That's why he's a merciful high priest. He suffered everything we deserved so that we could receive everything he deserved. The moment you try to earn that by just gaining even the slightest position, that's religion. You are actually rejecting the gospel in being religious. The gospel is, I receive. Isn't that amazing? So you respond with love. You respond with gratitude. I receive. We say, if God is really committed to my glory, then why does he let me suffer so much? Listen, if Jesus Christ's glory was enhanced through his suffering, then surely our suffering will enhance our glory. You see that? That's how it shapes you in suffering. That's how you can have a ground, a footing in suffering. You can look to Christ and you can say, you are the measure of my worth. You are the measure of my beauty. You are the measure of my wealth. You are the measure of my love. You are the measure of my approval. Instead of trying to look for beauty and worth and wealth and love everywhere else around us, approval everywhere else, else around us, you say, you are the measure of my worth. And what did you, how do you know? Because he died for you. You are only willing to die for the things that you love most. Jesus Christ gladly jumped, prepared for the chance to die for his people. He is the measure of our beauty and our worth. Look at the beauty of Christ. Look at the love of Christ. Look at the worth of Christ. Look at the richness that we find ourselves in Christ. Look at the approval. He's proud of us. When trouble comes, 
It's a natural thing to want to take control. In our world, we don't deal with trouble very well. We try to do everything we can to avoid troubling, trouble in our lives. The Western world is inundated with ways to just make life more comfortable so we can avoid suffering. And so we become very weak. The Hebrews author is saying that's how you become weak. You see, we become so weak to suffering. So the slightest bit of suffering, we just complain and we lose heart, we get discouraged. Look to Christ. You want to know the extent of Christ's suffering? There's a hymn, an old hymn that we don't sing, right? But I love the words. One of the final verses that he took up the dregs of God's wrath. You know what that means? You know what the dregs are? In a cup of tea, those little things that are floating at the bottom that have still a little bit of potency, right? The author is saying, the author of the hymn is saying that Jesus Christ was sipping God's wrath like a cup of tea. And it got down to the dregs. And he took the dregs, put it in his mouth, and he sucked out the potency of the dregs until there was no potency left. That's the power and the beauty and the love and the grace of God in Christ. He sucked up the dregs of God's wrath to the last drop, like a cup of tea. And when he said, it is finished, the debt is paid, the penalty, the price has been paid for us, he said, Isaiah 53, he literally said it, he said, ah, that was good. It's finished. Let that shape your suffering. Lastly, it's going to shape your self-image. There's no one like Jesus who tore apart his soul and his body like rags and used those rags to heal our wounds, to wrap them around our souls to heal us. There's no one like Jesus who did that. So when you're discouraged, when you're suffering, it's easy. It's easy to think, where's God in all this? Some of us have endured great things. I know people in this room who have suffered unimaginable suffering unimaginable suffering losses of family members seeing it being a part of that i know people in this room suffered immeasurably financial loss to the point of ruin in the midst of tremendous in the midst of growth and birth suffering financially i know people in this room who've lost There's an emptiness in your soul even now because you've lost things. You've never had certain things because of certain losses in your life. You know, when you're suffering, it's easy to think, where's God in all this? God has forsaken me. He's forgotten me. You have to remember this. The cross was a place where you were left for dead. You were literally left for dead. Okay? You were forsaken. Jesus Christ, when he said, I am forsaken, He's saying, I have been left for dead cosmically. That's what he's saying. Cosmically left for dead. Why? So when he looked out at us, he didn't say, do you get what I'm doing for you? Good Friday is not Jesus looking at you and saying, do you get this, what I'm doing for you? I mean, every day is the gospel saying that. But that's not what Jesus does, you see. Jesus on the cross Jesus, vulnerable at his birth, the meaning of Christmas, is God saying, I love you that much. Proud of you. You're justified. Justified. Proved it on the cross. That's the end of self-loathing. It's easy to hate yourself. There are days when there are people in this room, they don't feel pretty. They don't feel handsome. 
This is the end of self-loathing. And we sacrifice a lot to avoid that. You sacrifice a lot. You sacrifice your integrity. You lie with your resume every day to avoid self-loathing. You give up things, maybe even your purity, every day so you could end the self-loathing, the loneliness, the abandonment. Because you think these things are going to increase your sense of worth, but when you do those things, it actually ends up decreasing your sense of worth. So there's greater self-loathing afterwards. When you know that the king himself sacrificed everything, including his purity. He be- 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. I'm giving away my favorite verse. God made him who had no sin become sin for us. That means Jesus Christ gave up his purity. When you recognize that he did that for you and he's proud of you in your brokenness, there's the love, there's the approval, there's the worth that you need, that you've been looking for all your life. And he's come down and he's engaged with you and he fought for you and he fights for you and he's present for you, right? He's present and he's proud of you. No matter what you've done or not done, no matter where you've been, hell and back, Jesus says, I've been through hell and back for you. Christmas calls us to trust. Do you trust in the king who's come? And he's coming back. Do you trust that? Let's pray. Let's pray that it'll shape our lives.